Welcome to another episode of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob podcast. This week, I'm joined by Chef Ryder Zetz, who's the executive chef over at The Optimist in Nashville, Tennessee. They actually have two locations of The Optimist. The original one opened in Atlanta. One in Nashville opened, I think it was like August 2020, kind of somewhere in there. Pretty much like halfway through kind of the pandemic, really. Sister restaurant to... The Optimist in Atlanta. Both are part of the Ford Fry restaurant group. He's a restaurateur, has a bunch of different restaurants across the Carolinas, Atlanta primarily, some stuff in Texas, and he's kind of expanding his way into the Nashville, Tennessee area. Chef Zetz is somebody who spent a lot of time working in Napa um, before moving back across the country to Nashville. We kind of get into that. Went to culinary school, wound up working at the Inn at Little Washington way before it had a Michelin star. So we talk about that too as well and, and started kind of a pop-up side business um, during the pandemic when everything was shut down before the, the Optimus actually opened. Uh, and his wife has a side kind of bread business that she's running to as well. So we get into all that stuff. It's a, it's a pretty cool conversation, different perspective. He's super well-rounded, super enlightened to the challenges of hiring people and the reasons for different, you know, cost of living and all that stuff, which kind of factored into his decision to move to Nashville and everything. And he was part owner in a different restaurant and partnership didn't really work out and stuff like that. So we kind of cover all that. So it's a great restaurant. If you've never been to it since it's, you know, is newer, probably the last time since you've probably been to Nashville, unless you go to Nashville every couple months, I would highly recommend it. We originally, it was in kind of our backup list when we went there November of last year. And we wound up basically, there was another place we were going to go, which is kind of closer to downtown. And we were walking around downtown where kind of Broadway is and which is just kind of its own little shit show. Um, but we were just kind of walking around there just the one day to something to do. The one restaurant we were going to go to was kind of like maybe a street or two up and just wasn't feeling the vibe. Kind of looked around, you know, in the area and everything. And we're like, ah, I don't know. Do I want to come all the way back down here to go to dinner? Like, is it going to be good? I was kind of on the fence of the place. So we wound up just seeing if we could get a reservation at the Optimus. We did. We got seated right by where they expedite the food. And he had the raw bar right next to it. And so we got to see just the food coming out of the kitchen constantly, the lobster rolls and, and all that stuff. And just we had an awesome time. We got to watch them serve up food and we're just eating delicious seafood it's really strange to find an awesome seafood restaurant in nashville uh, just because it's a landlocked city but it was outstanding so i can't recommend it enough if you find your way to nashville make sure to go especially if you like seafood definitely check it out the neighborhood is going to be awesome once they're done with it and we get into that too as well in the episode it was basically like this old distribution manufacturing neighborhood. I think it's called Germantown, but it's like right up against the river. The Optimus is kind of like the anchor tenant. There's a nice, beautiful, brand new apartment complex right behind it. And it's like the Optimus and all the extensions off that. And then there's like a little kind of yoga studio across the street. But then they're working on rebuilding all these different brick buildings and stuff. And they're going to make a whole bunch of different things. And it's going to be really cool when it's done. Nashville is kind of one of those cities where... All the cool stuff is on the outside of the downtown of the city. There's a few things downtown, but like most of it's just like, it's like the Broadway area. And you don't really care about that once you get past kind of your college years. Some people really love bouncing around all the different bars there. Uh, they're all kind of country music themed with different people and stuff like that. That never used to be the situation. At some point it changed and now it's like anybody who's a country music singer has like a bar there. But all the good restaurants are just kind of on the outside of downtown. And The Optimist is just another example of that. So it's kind of a weird setup because you always have to drive to the awesome restaurants. But it's really no different than, you know, Columbus. You pretty much have to drive to all the awesome restaurants because we also don't have any good public transportation here aside from a bus system. So make sure to follow them on Instagram at the Optimist Nashville, all spelled out. The one in Atlanta is at the Optimist ATL. And then you can also follow Ryder. He doesn't post too, too much, but it's Easy Ride 04. Think Ryder minus the R. So Easy R Y D E 04. Uh, that's his Instagram handle there as well. Without further delay, here is the interview I did with executive chef Ryder Zetz of the Optimist in Nashville, Tennessee. Thanks again for taking some time out of your off day to come on the podcast. Appreciate it. We had the chance to eat at The Optimist when we were in Nashville. It would have been, I think, November of last year. Had a great time, had an amazing time. Just really awesome. And, you know, I'll start where we start with pretty much everybody. You know, how did you kind of first get into 
cooking, you know, becoming a chef? Was it something that was just in your family growing up with, or was it just first job in high school and stuck with it? Uh, yeah, definitely the first job in high school. I was the uh, 14 year old dishwasher story. I had a uh, divorced parents and my, my mom was a really big worker. So she kind of instilled that into us. So I got a job pretty early and I just remember, uh, you know, get, I got a job at a retirement community in central Virginia where I worked. And uh, it's kind of funny. I started working like Sundays and Saturdays and then our mom used to take us to church every Sunday. And then I remember after about three or four dishwashing shifts, I was like, man, I wish I was in church. That's that's only an hour of misery. This is like eight hours of washing fluorescent red lipstick off of white coffee cups. And that used to always gross me out for some reason, like seeing the old, the old lady's lipstick on the coffee cups is something that's still scarred in me. You know, always looked up to the sous chefs there and end up spending, man, between that job and some other uh, part-time jobs all the way through high school, I ended up about five years at that retirement community, working my way up to line cook. And the chef was at, you know, when you say retirement community, people think like, oh, a nursing home, you're serving like, you know, pureed stuff. But no, retirement community is a whole nother level. And it's actually a pretty strong level of cuisine. The chef was from Liverpool. I don't know how many Englishmen you met, but he was really formative on me with his uh, filthy humor uh, and sarcasm. But uh, yeah, the English are another breed. So that was kind of fun. And I remember basically it kind of led into into culinary school. Ended up signing up for uh, CIA up in Hyde Park when I was probably about just turned 20. I was like, well, you know, I'm not going to go to normal college. And actually, I did try a little stint in community college. I'm like, man, this is not for me. So uh, ended up going to culinary school. I'm like, I guess this is my destiny at that point after five years of doing it. Went up to Hyde Park and started from that moment on. Is anybody from your class still cooking? Do you stay in touch with anybody from there that you know of that's still in the industry? Well, I guess the first person is my wife, who's in the other room right now. And uh, she's definitely still cooking. She actually has an amazing resume. She uh, ended up working at three three-star restaurants. Uh, the restaurant in Meadowood, the French Laundry, and, and a little Washington. But in the front of the house capacity, she kind of migrated to the front. And now she's got an amazing home business where she's doing sourdough. And right now she's actually bagging up uh, the stuff she calls crack. It's uh, like a peanut butter brittle, 800 bags of it for this lady that has a corporation. So... She's definitely still involved into it. And then I have a couple other buddies, but definitely a lot of career changers over the, what's it been, uh, 22 years, 21 years. Is that where you guys met was culinary school? Yeah, we met in culinary school. I think the second semester we were, we were in the same class and uh, she did her intern externship in Colorado and I went down to the Florida Keys and then we kind of connected after that and ended up traveling to about cooking in about four or five states after after we graduated together. And then now we're, I think we're finally going to settle down here in Nashville. Yeah, we're going to get into that because you, you live for a long time, like you mentioned in, in Napa. But before we get there, do you think based on your experience at culinary school, experience sense and running different kitchens, do you think culinary school still makes sense for somebody wanting to be serious about the profession? Or do you think hands-on experience in kitchen experience is more valuable? I mean, definitely hands-on in kitchen experience is more valuable. And that's the, the line I would give everybody if they just asked me that question. Uh, you pose, forego culinary school and just travel around and cook at great kitchens and actually get paid while you learn. But I mean, now I, I kind of look at the other side of the coin where I think some people's brains are maybe wired a little differently and they need that formal education to kind of root them. So I think it's an individual basis. I think as far as I, I'm concerned, obviously, I met my wife there, which is brilliant. Also, I think just I, I really love the the romance and history behind strong rooted European cuisine and doing things a certain way for a reason. And I think that's to me is my biggest draw for culinary school. So when you graduated culinary school after that, you went to was it the inn at Little Washington? No, that was a few stops later. We actually went back to the Florida Keys because well, I did my internship, externship at a place called uh, Cafe des Artistes, which is gone now, but uh, it was the best kitchen in the Florida Keys at the time. And I, we wanted to go back because we were young, first off, and we're like, yeah, let's move to the Keys. We got, we own nothing. We like literally got our mattress from the Salvation Army and had stolen wicker furniture off of people's patios to furnish our living room so i'm like yeah let's move to the keys it's great my brother was stationed in the coast guard down there we're like so i ended up working at cafe des artistes which had a very regimented chef named andrew berman who i have a, a lot of fun stories on him but uh the only opening he had was pastry garmage so it was it was great i got to do weekly uh pastry specials so I opened up some old school beau friedberg 
pastry chef books and got to do like all kinds of cool charlottes and parfaits and tarte tans stuff that is extremely you know old school but like it's just timeless and and that was an amazing experience for me um then we ended up going to her home state where she grew up uh colorado at that, that time it was right after 9-11 so i put out about literally 30 resumes and nobody was hiring so i ended up taking a job as a breakfast server at a place called la peep that's a whole another wild story but luck over like the course of two months, I got promoted to lead server, got the keys to unlock the joint. And then luckily they went bankrupt and I had to get back into the kitchen. But um, that was a wild ride. And then ended up going to uh, the same place she worked, uh, Brown Palace, which is like a fancy hotel in downtown Denver. I think it was built in the late 1800s. Really cool spot, all like garbed out in Napoleon decor and the Palace Arms restaurant, Napoleon's pistol and swords on the wall, all that kind of stuff. Cooked there for a year and then... I uh, got an opportunity at a cool little place in the foothills in Evergreen called Restaurant Cody, which is kind of a up and coming California cuisine and chefs from California. Did that for a while. And then we went to in a little Washington, Virginia. Do you know why people like in Colorado even weren't hiring during September 11th? Like what was the reason behind like the hiring freeze? Was it just everybody was panicking? Yeah, I don't recall the specifics, but I think we went into like a major recession like instantly or something happened that maybe the stock market crashed right after the the towers got hit and i think it was the economy basically just fell off a cliff so everybody was nervous and not hiring did you decide to work at the in at little washington or was that just something that somebody recommended or how'd you wind up getting in there uh, a couple reasons but i mean coming from virginia for most of my life and then going up to cia i actually bought his his first cookbook i think it's called Consuming Passion, Patrick O'Connell's first book. And I had it in culinary school and I was always enamored with it and read his story. And then honestly, I went out, we went out for Halloween to visit and I had an elaborate plan to, uh, I wanted to propose to my wife at the, at the end. And of course, I've never seen it. And we ended up staying for two nights and dying there two nights. And it was like other level. I mean, of course, the, the food was great, you know, lots of luxury ingredients, you know, foie, caviar, truffles, all that. But the service was just, even to this day, I mean, even with her background, we've never experienced service to that level. And just the details, especially when you're a guest staying, sleeping at the end, like the level, the level of detail is just like dizzying. It's, it's so impressive. I mean, really brilliant experience. So we're like, man, we need to work here. So we got in contact with her HR once we got back to Colorado and set up a couple of stages and her for the front and me for the back. And we ended up getting hired and, and stayed there for two years. At that point, was that kind of the highest level kitchen that you were involved in? I mean, that was your first kind of level, like that Michelin star kind of level. Was that your, your first experience in a kitchen like that? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, it was. Come to think of it, definitely the most regimented, high technique kitchen I've, I've been a part of at that point in my career. What was the most challenging aspect of being in a style of kitchen like that, was it just kind of the military style structure or was it just the amount of covers you guys were doing? Like what stands out when you look back on that experience? You always think of things differently in hindsight. And for me, you know, looking back on it, it was, it was fairly easy, if that's the right word to say. But uh, I think those style of kitchens, I think the biggest hurdle is always the fact that your peers want to see you struggle. They want to see you fail to a degree because the human nature in those old school brigade style kitchens kind of thrive off competition and people like to see others struggle. For some reason, that really brings enjoyment to everybody. Yeah, it's probably something to do with like everybody's competitive and wants to make it to the next level. So I think probably if you see somebody failing, it probably registers in your mind that like you're ahead of them. No, I could see that for sure. It's, so there's a lot of that macho environment there. Looking back upon the experience, it was, it was great. And, and what Patrick's done just from the hospitality level and being in the middle of nowhere and creating a destination out of an old gas station. It's like, I've never seen anything like it. And I don't think I ever will again. How did you decide to move from Napa from there? Uh, well, at that point, I knew that I was over fine dining, you know, just the the nine courses and the luxury ingredients. And I recall a funny one of many funny, wasteful things in fine dining. But at the end, we would like basically yellowfin number one and beautiful loins from Hawaii. And we would circle punch them. The butcher would circle punch them into beautiful steaks just out of the eye. 
and we'd probably get like 70% waste. So an employee cafeteria, <laughs> the housekeeper. So it was very country and rural. So a lot of like the maintenance team and the housekeepers, we know were like, you know, old school Virginians. And they're like, ah, tuna every day. They just complain and like eat a number one yellowfin tuna. And they're just so over it. So I was kind of just over the fine dining thing and had a goal to have a more casual restaurant, my wife and I. And uh, at that time, once again, a cookbook kind of led me to explore another opportunity. So I had the Bouchon cookbook and loving bistro casual and, and French roots. I, I was like, man, I really want to eat everything in this cookbook. So we flew out and staged at Bouchon. And, and my wife also has a little bit of uh, family, aunts and cousins in the Bay Area. And the one time, I guess we did go out and visit yeah, when we were living in the Keys, we actually flew out and uh, ate at the French Laundry when Thomas Keller was actually still still cooking. I think it was, uh, who's the chef of City's End? And so we actually flew out from one of our my cook buddies, my wife and I. We all flew out to California just on a fun food trip. And we ate at the French Laundry. And I was like, wow, pretty, pretty epic experience. And met Thomas Keller. He signed my cookbook. And yeah, and just going to the grocery stores out there and feeling the climate and seeing agriculture. I'm like, wow, we could live here one day. So then jumping to where I was, I had the Bouchon cookbook and I was like, you know, let's go do it. And so she staged at the French Laundry, got a job and I staged at Bouchon, got a job. And that's kind of how we immersed ourselves in the start of California. Was Bouchon as regimented as the French Laundry was? No. So my wife was at the French Laundry. You know, I, I just stopped there, but I think it wasn't as regimented. And I was also there at Bouchon is pre-remodel, which I know <laughs> I know that probably means nothing to you, but the kitchen was minuscule to say the least. I mean, just imagine like a, a nice walk-in closet then throw a couple French flat tops in there and then add a dining room that seats at 11 a.m. and stop serving food at 1 a.m. And that, and that was kind of that experience. Uh, but I wouldn't say it was regiment, as regimented as the laundry or in a little Washington, but definitely had some of that ego play in the kitchen and that culture that, that I was trying to get away from it to extent. Okay, yeah, because I was going to ask, like, what led to kind of leaving Bouchon? Because eventually he opens, you know, Bouchon and Beverly Hills and the one in Vegas. And that seems like maybe a natural growth opportunity. But it was just kind of the style of you were just kind of over the competitive kitchens and just wanted to cook, essentially, right? Yeah, and I mean, at the time, you know, I think especially post-remodel, it's a little bit different. But we we were grinding pretty hard. I mean, there was cooks setting up cutting boards on top of like milk crates and prepping in the walk-in during the transition from lunch to dinner. And it was just, it was getting stretched. They were really grinding out food for, you know, sales perspective, just to, you know, just to sell things. It was, it was, it was painful there for a while. So I only did a, a year there and had a, had a fun opportunity with a, a friend of my, my wife, when she was at the laundry, basically her manager husband, uh, Brandon Sharp was opening a resort up in Calistoga. And he had a management opportunity that I jumped on at Soul Bar in Calistoga. So at that point, when you took that opportunity, did you think like you were just going to be kind of in a managerial capacity and just kind of get away from cooking for a while? Or were you planning on to kind of do both? No. So he he hired me as a sous chef. And he basically, Brandon Sharp, he, he was a graduate of the French Laundry and he worked at Restaurant August. And then did the European Arzac tour and all that stuff. So he, he had really solid pedigree without the the ba- the ego baggage and so we jived pretty early and i was basically just looking for a, a healthier environment where i could thrive you know from an emotional and creation standpoint when you took that role at soul bar was that your first experience like managing other people in the kitchen or had you done that before no i had a probably a eight month stint in colorado where i was a sous chef at a place table mountain inn that had been dropping our timeline there. So sous chef there. And then that was probably my first real experience managing people to a degree. I mean, in some of those brigade style kitchens, you're constantly, you know, nurturing to a degree, even though if you don't know it, you know, it's sort of like passive nurturing and and osmosis going on. So it was was pretty natural role in that sense. Was there any sort of challenges like when you first had to start managing other kitchen staff? Looking back on it, my approach was, you know, I was in my when I started at Soul Bar, I was probably about 27 or 28. And I look at myself now as 43. And let's just say I had, I don't know if it was post-children slash testosterone levels waning, but I, w- I had a few few final warnings over my career there with the human resources department, let's just say that. <laughs> but um, so looking back on it, I think I was a little too, I didn't know how to like rein in my passion. You know, I just took it out a little too aggressively. 
Soul Bar, what kind of cuisine was that? Was that just kind of West Coast, Napa Valley, local, seasonal? Yeah, so it was great. I ended up spending six years there and it, and it branched into my my next job after that because it was such a great environment. But so we opened as basically a play. So we were a spa. So Calistoga was kind of settled on its natural hot springs. And uh, so half of our menu was dedicated to lighter, healthier fare. And the other half was more indulgent. So definitely rooted in produce, good local ingredients, obviously, from you know the ocean or the farms, lots of cool connections, cheesemakers. But yeah, California cuisine. And uh, Brandon Sharp, who I mentioned, he's definitely a big mentor of mine. He's he's kind of a Southern guy, too. He's he's down in uh, Chapel Hill now. He just started his own restaurant about a year ago called Hawthorne and Wood. So we both had some Southern, a little Southern influence. And after about a year, I got promoted to CDC. And then I think... Our second year, we we got a star. So it was just really, really fun kitchen to be in. Great time to be in. So what was that like when you guys got a Michelin star? Because you talk to so many people, and it's at least I have the people that I've talked to. There's always kind of this point where they get to, and it's like they either got into Bon Appetit or the Michelin star or whatever, and then just all of a sudden, like, business explodes overnight. And they almost never have to worry about, like, the dining room being full again, like, from that point forward kind of thing. So did that change that for you guys, too, or were you already kind of packed out? And it was just like, oh, cool, we got recognized. Yeah, I mean, we we're a little bit, uh, maybe a, a bit of an anomaly being in a resort. You know, first off, we have that capture rate already with with all the, you know, the ninety nine little uh, cottages that we had. You know, so we already had a lot of guests, especially for breakfast, lunch. Obviously, I think at that point we were kind of already building up our reputation. We we got a good review from Michael Bauer, but yeah, the the morning I think I was probably in a work at like it was like ten fifteen and. And I was just walking towards ice machine and somebody physically tackled me and slammed me on the ground. And it was, uh, it was Brandon and he was, of course, like super excited and then opened champagne up at 10 and he was super stoked coming from like the, the old school French background that he, you know, French laundry and all that kind of stuff too. So I think it meant a ton to him. I always tried to downplay it. Like, you know, what does it matter if like some French tire company recognizes you, you know, but obviously, obviously it means a lot in the, the chef world at the end of the day. I mean, it's really the biggest compliments are always like your repeat guests and your, and your local diners that praise you. Yeah. I would, I don't know if Michelin, it still carries weight. I don't know if it carries as much weight as it used to now with like, I feel like social media took out some of kind of maybe the gravitas of it a little bit, maybe then with all the other kind of restaurant awards and stuff like that. But I mean, it's still prominent out of, I mean, I think it's still probably the most recognized and probably maybe most important of all the awards, but I think it probably coming up in like the nineties and two thousands before social media is probably a little bit different probably meant a bit more maybe no i'm in the same mindset for sure then after soul bar you went to archetype right was that next yeah so uh because of soul bar uh there was a, there was a restaurant in st Helena, a cute little town in the heart of napa valley and a, a brilliant uh architect by the name of howard Backen opened a restaurant called uh french blue and it was meant to be like all day sort of american french bistro you know you can get an omelet any time of day the space he built was in architectural digest like top 10 most beautiful restaurants when it was created just a gorgeous lots of natural light patio place uh his if you ever see he's kind of like responsible for like restoration hardware design he just has like this timeless approach with his design outdoors meet the indoors sort of deal but he was always a big supporter of us at soul bar and his place french blue was floundering a bit so he hired uh, Brandon and me to redo the concept and for me to take over as executive chef. So we renamed it Archetype. And uh, yeah, I took that role and ended up staying there for three years. What was the concept that you settled on? Uh, we were basically lunch and dinner, brunch on the weekends. And we were once similar to Soul Bar, but I guess you'd call it California cuisine. I think that has its own description now, California cuisine. You can say that now and not be too blurry. But uh, yeah, we are California cuisine, you know, produce driven, uh, wood fire, wood oven, lots of stuff cooked in the wood oven. Um, a few carryovers I'm still doing to this day, even at The Optimist, just dishes that are to me timeless and to me represent what I'm doing. And honestly, like just people never get sick of it. So you just got to kind of keep doing it. Do chefs like cooking brunch? I'm not a brunch person, but I know it's super popular. And and so it's like, is brunch for a restaurant? It's just, it's obviously another revenue stream, but I think most chefs that, that I've read about or, or talked to, they're always like, man, I, I just fucking hate cooking eggs. 
Um, me, I, I actually love it with the caveat, you know, then thinking about dinner service being right after that is the, always the hang up, you know what I mean? But brunch itself, I, I love everything about it. Like I, I mean, I would love to go to brunch, but here in Nashville, don't even think about going out to brunch unless you're ready to wait an hour to go somewhere that, you know, like, but I mean, I love cooking eggs. I love brunch cuisine. I mean, I love brining my own corned beef and I had this really badass waffle maker like Kramputz brand and it weighed like 95 pounds of all cast iron. It, it pulled 3000 Watts and it would just make these brilliant waffles that, I mean, I, I just love brunch. Everything about brunch. I just love it. Like the idea of like being able to day drink and not feel guilty. Like it's just the idea of going home and taking a nap because you overate. There's just so much romance about brunch, you know? But I mean, I understand why a lot of chefs hate it because they're the ones executing it. But if I was to open just a brunch restaurant and there was no dinner, I'll, it'd be paradise probably. So then after Archetype, you wind up becoming part owner, executive chef at Cook and Cook Tavern, right? That comes next. Once again, you always, I think humans, we always have this, this timeline in our head for, for progression. And I felt like for me, the next progression would be to be part owner. And I was sad to leave Archetype. Like I said, Howard's a brilliant guy. And there's some tears shed there. I had an acquaintance in, in the Valley, Jude, who's the chef owner of Cook and Cook Tavern. And he kind of had an opportunity to buy in, which was kind of the easy way to get in without a full financial commitment. So uh, we ended up buying, I guess, shares, you would say, and ended up probably being about 30 some percent owner. That opportunity, was it just kind of one of those things where it's the next kind of step in your career or was it just too good of an opportunity to kind of pass up? Like, because being an owner of a restaurant is completely different than being the executive chef at one, right? Yeah. And then I was an owner and a partner and, you know, I'll just, I'll just kind of say that wasn't, you know, the partnership didn't really work out that great. You know, that's kind of where I'll leave it, but uh, it was a, it was a challenge, you know, having like two husband and wives involved, you know, in, in the restaurant. So it just didn't kind of pan out for us, you know, it's like a lot of red tape trying to get anything done. You got to get everybody's opinion and it's like back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. And, and it's hard, man. I mean, I'm, you know, one of the main reasons we left the Valley is like me could go from St. Helena to Calistoga and I'm just off memory. I can tell you probably 10 vacant restaurant spaces, you know, it's just, there's too much weighing against you as a restaurant tour in, in California. It's just hard. Cause I read a interview that I think you did and you were talking about, you know, leaving Napa and, and I think you thought you know, you'd retire there and, and all these different factors, which I want to ask you about, like when you guys decided to leave Napa, was there one thing or was it a, a bunch of factors that you were kind of like, well, there's this, 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 and this, and you add all that together and it kind of makes sense or. I mean, there was definitely probably like five factors, but I mean, yeah, the partnership going sour was one. Obviously, there was, there was still other opportunities for me. I, I, I was applying to jobs and got, I think, two local, pretty solid job offers. And then um, we knew in the back of our heads that, well, first off, you know, our, our kids, you know, are in public school and, and the public school up there wasn't wasn't the best. So we wanted to obviously get our kids into good public schools. You know, we knew at the end of our road that we were going to have our own little spot and we knew it wasn't sustainable in California. I mean, I'm an avid gardener, like our water bill would be 300 and some dollars a month. I mean, you could literally go to a gourmet grocery store and buy tomatoes cheaper than growing your own. So there was that. And then, I mean, I had a cool uh, email thread that I was kind of keeping alive from an old mentor of mine who ended up connecting me with Ford. And that was kind of always in the back of my head. And there was something also in my head where I knew that my wife and I traveled a lot. And even as a kid, I lived in a few different states. And I, I felt like I'd probably be like shorting my kids a little bit if they literally just stayed in one spot for 18 years, you know? So I kind of just like force fed us a family adventure, if you will. Okay. I was going to ask, so like, was everybody else on board or did you have to constantly like pitch the idea like over time, little by little? Uh, well, my kids were luckily fairly young at the time. I think my oldest was in, a, in the first grade. So they're down for anything, you know, definitely to my wife. She was a little, she was a little angry there for a couple of minutes, but, uh, but now she is so, so happy. I mean, she's thriving out here and She's absolutely like best decision we ever made from a career view. So how did you guys decide on Nashville to be the next place? During my time at Soul Bar, the, the company Auberge Resorts, I think they, I don't remember his title, but he was like a vice president of culinary of some sorts. And basically he would travel around from resort to resort. His name was uh, George Mahaffey, kind of an old celebrated chef from, uh, from Aspen. He was on food and wine. I think he won, I don't know if he won James Beard Southwest, but, uh, 
he was he was doing really well in the 80s and 90s uh george mahaffey and he he worked for auberge and he would come out and we kind of connected he uh, went to high school in central virginia as well so he's kind of a virginia boy and we connected and basically ford cooked with him back in aspen in the day and they knew about each other and i guess ford reached out to george probably about six years ago maybe five at least by now and um was picking george kind of retired and he's in bangkok on a beach with a with a wife that's about 30 years younger than him now so uh he's doing fine but uh he uh, Ford reached out to George and was like, Hey man, we're doing this project in Nashville, yada, yada, you know, do you know anybody? And so George threw my name in the hat. And at the time, I think I, I wasn't very interested, but I was like, Oh, thanks for, thanks for the interest guys. But the project just got so delayed because of construction building into an old building that I guess the opportunity was still alive. So when the relationship was kind of souring at cook, I, I basically reached back out to this company and set up a, a tasting and an interview out in Atlanta with their group. How was that interview structured? Did you just cook whatever you wanted? Was it they had gave you ingredients to make something with? It was really cool. They uh, basically flew out. Then they were like, hey, you know, our VP of Culinary and Ford, you're going to just make them a, a crudo, an appetizer, and a main course, all seafood related, obviously. You know, And they have the Optimus, the original location in Atlanta. So I just cooked out of there and uh, I could have ordered anything I want, but I basically, the day before I just went through their walk-in and then I went to a little local market and um, just kind of picked some stuff out and, and did some courses for them. Did you do like a whole lot of seafood at, at other restaurants before the Optimus? I mean, the Optimus is very seafood heavy and I mean, most restaurants have like one or two, you know, dishes, but even with being in, in Napa or was it kind of like, oh, I'm doing a lot more seafood now kind of thing. Just from my stint in the Florida Keys between externship and Cafe des Artistes, my externship, I was the, the saute cook and we were responsible for butchering all of our own fish. So we get a lot of pristine stuff in, pompano, yellowtail snapper, grouper. We get a lot of beautiful products. I, I had a lot of uh, confidence and acumen in the, in the seafood realm, I think a long time before that. So that was, I was always confident in the seafood world. And it's just so versatile too, you know, compared to meat. I mean, it's, it's insane. The different preparations that you can, and techniques you can employ with seafood. So no, I, I was fairly confident on that front. Like riding a bike, essentially, basically instead of bring it all back. <laughs> kind of, but we still Napa Valley still, we still got some pretty cool West coast seafood that, uh, you know, I got to keep fresh with. So when you started, you know, once they offered you the job, did you work at the Atlanta location to kind of get a feel? Because I don't think the Nashville location was open at that point, right? No, it, was, it wasn't really the best time in our family life. But basically, I, my wife, I kind of put the, the moving ball in her court. So she had to move out with all three kids on her own. And I was in Atlanta because I needed to start working. So at the time, not really in a bad way, but I was kind of like the, a Band-Aid, if you will, because they had... Man, I don't want to say off memory, but there's probably like 13 restaurants that the company has in Atlanta. But Super Eek has their big Tex-Mex line. So if you don't count those, I think there's like five more of the boutique like independent concepts. So, you know, which is more my my artery. So first they put me into St. Cecilia, which is the Italian one. Basically like where executive chefs were quitting or if, somebody, if something bad was happening or that somebody needed support. I, would, I basically kind of did with like two or three months stints at each spot, you know. During that time when you're bouncing around all the restaurants in the group in Atlanta, because that's only what, like a two, three hour drive between Nashville and Atlanta? Like it's not that far, right? Did you come back on like days off? Yeah, three. Yeah, most of my weekends I would drive back for sure, unless I had like a six day work week or it was a holiday menu or things like that. Now, with the opening of the Optimus uh, Nashville, was that delayed? Was that just construction or coronavirus delay? Mainly construction. Like, from what I was told, it was supposed to open about two and a half years ago. But I think the gist of it was basically the contractor who was in charge of the job. The original contractor had some issues with licensing and, and financials. So they basically had to switch contractor mid-job, which was like a huge delay. And the fact that it's just a hundred-year-old building and you're you're kind of converting things over, you know, already adds a lot of time to the project as well. Yeah, for people that don't know, it's basically right on the river and it's this old brick building that they did a beautiful job with and there's like a brand new apartment complex behind it. 
And then there's like a little like yoga studio across the street and like a little complex. But then everything else around it is just vacant kind of either brick buildings that were once like manufacturing places or warehouses or whatever. Probably for like if you're going down the one road, I mean, at least half a mile before you hit like probably another apartment complex. So it's it's kind of like the first anchor tenant in what will eventually be a redeveloped area, essentially, from what it looks like. It's actually, it's insane. You probably, just since the time you've gone, they've already demolished the concrete plant next to us. And that's going to be 200 and some condos. Uh, the space next to us, I guess it's north, but it's right on the river there. It's like an old uh, meat packing butcher facility. It's a four-story, like brick, really cool old skeleton of a building. I don't know if you're familiar with the Pont City Market in Atlanta. Yeah, I've heard of it. Uh-huh. So it's going to be a giant mixed use space like that with restaurants and shopping and retail. And uh, it's, it's, it's going to be wild. There's a there's already some pre-existing barges in the river that they're going to use for entertainment purposes. I know one of them is going to be an in-ground pool on the river, on a barge. There's going to be a walking bridge over the river, over to the top golf on the other side there. So what, what they're doing is it's going to be insane. Like I mentioned earlier, Nashville isn't exactly the first place anybody probably would think of for a seafood-focused restaurant. Usually you kind of think seafood, you think somewhere on the coast or whatever. How do you guys go about like sourcing for different dishes on the menu? I mean, some stuff changes. Obviously, there's the seasonal nature, but then you have seafood seasonal, which is a whole other kind of thing just because of migration patterns and all that stuff. So obviously, you have probably some set stuff that you want to have on the menu continuously, but... But how does all that kind of work with seafood being just this different sourcing apparatus? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, a lot of people have kind of asked me that, like, oh, like just like you said, like Nashville's landlocked. But um, the seafood that I have my hands on here is superior to what I would get back in Napa. You know, even though Napa is like you know hour fifteen from the coast, just the diversity and the modern transportation. But being next to the Atlantic, the Gulf, and then transportation from the Northeast. For example, like all, all of our golf seafood comes from a company, Evans Seafood and Meat, out of Birmingham, which Birmingham is a major hub for golf seafood. So they come up three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And their stuff's amazing. I mean, anything from the golf, so the mahi, snapper, southern oysters, uh, fresh crab meat. I mean, I, I spend lots of money with them. And they're, they're I, I've been turning the servers on and trying to get the guests into it. But there's always a stigma on warm water oysters, you know, people like, oh, I only want oysters from PEI or the West Coast or, or Maine. But there's a region of Florida, the Panacea region, which I think, if I can recall, it's, I think it's just the west of Destin, kind of near the, uh, the panhandle a little bit. But basically, it's where the rivers meet the ocean. And there's a lot of mineral springs there and it used to be a big Native American protected area. And it's still a protected area. And the the oysters that come from that region are my favorite oysters I've had, period. And uh, so there's a lot of producers coming out of that region. And then, of course, you have Alabama, Mississippi oysters. North Carolina has got really good oysters now. I think basically just the oyster communities are, you know, they're refining their product for the consumer's education now. I mean, they're not just like big, let's shuck these and broil them on the grill, like, you know, Gulf oysters. There's a lot of finesse and tumbling and just pristine oysters coming out of the Gulf. And then also just with, with modern transportation. I mean, I have a buddy up in Portland, Maine, my wife from a division of Inland, Inland Lobster, he runs Will. My wife went up and visited him. He's shipping down our lobster and awesome uh, Maine oysters and mussels. So that's overnighted. And then Island Creek up in Duxbury, Massachusetts, I get a, two shipments of, a week from oysters on them. And then, I mean, you just have Atlanta as well being right there, being the biggest airport or communication hub in the country slash world. So, I mean, Nashville is really just like you know, the hub with a whole bunch of spokes to access seafood like weekly. That's just awesome. I mean, I get really solid stuff and and really conveniently too. So no issues on that front at all. Do they usually just kind of know like what you're looking for now that you've kind of built a relationship over, you know, since the restaurant's been open and they know, they know or do you still call them and be like, you guys got anything different in this week? Anything unique or, you know, because your brain's kind of turning from a creative process or... Yeah, I mean, like you said, I kind of have the the stand the standbys on the menu, the ones that are always there. Like I always wanted a whole flatfish presentation. Like back in Napa, I'd always do a petrale sole, which is like the local flatfish out there, and just pan dress it and roast it on the bone. Out here, we have flounder, so I got a good supplier from Hampton Roads that ships us the flounder three times a week off the coast of Virginia there, and and it's just always stable and. And that's great. But then some of the other reps, you know, send you basically weekly updates like, you know, hey, we got some spot bronze if you want to pay, you know, $50 a pound for those. Or, you know, we got 
we got cool things, you know, from, you know, halibut cheeks or what have you. So you can always, you know, we, we print the menu every day. So, you know, myself and the sous chefs and even the cooks have a lot of say. And, you know, when we get some cool stuff in, we just roll with it, you know. So a lot of flexibility in that sense. It's great to be able to, especially with pricing the way it is right now, with all the supply demand issues, like prices have been going up. So to be able to print the menus daily, that, that's huge, you know, because the prices are always so it's just insane right now i'm sure you've heard a little bit about what's going on with that but it's not it's not very fun how do you guys decide to put a new dish on the menu or or take one off is it just you get some ingredients in that you kind of mess around with and you think oh you know you try it and oh it's good enough to go on the menu or or is there something that you're like you know that's been on the menu for a while like let's take that off for like a couple weeks or something else that we can put on and in its place or how do you kind of come to that conclusion I mean, the, the major slice of that pie is dictated by seasonality, you know, I mean, you know, like when the first summer squash come in or the squash blossoms, you know, okay, we're going to do a dish around that, you know, like I get excited about the squash, like what, what goes with the squash, okay, blue crab, you know, blue, blue crab, you can almost get year round, but obviously you're not going to put the blue crab with, you know, Farmer Dave's summer squash and blossoms in, in December. So it's kind of, I think that's like the way you can outsmart the guest you know, get them to eat squash and eggplant and things that a lot of people don't gravitate towards, you know, is, is you know, maybe you put it with a, with a scallop or, or with crab or tuna something that they want, you know, but, but so seasonality dictates it first and foremost. But then after that, absolutely. Like, you know, me and the chefs will just get kind of burnt out of seeing something or, or sometimes it's like kind of fun, but like the servers would, if, if we have like, like we had like zucchini fries as a side dish last summer. We couldn't keep up with these things, you know. I mean, it's people are eating zucchini. Yes, it's great. You know, there's a great margin on us, you know, from selling it. But it, at the end of the day, it's just like I'm not going to put these on again, man, because you guys just you oversell it. And like right now, we have this amazing Roma bean side, which I think Roma. I always call them Romano beans, but down here they they call them Roma beans. So they're like flat beans, you know. Farmer Dave has amazing like yellow and green flat beans. And my soup, Brian came up with a great sort of Asian inspired black garlic sort of vinaigrette we just blister the beans and cast iron and it's just delicious and fresh and you can eat the whole plate and want more it just doesn't sell because you know it's we have a, of course we have like an eggplant chip sort of side on the menu and it's fried and that just flies out and so sometimes i'll just long, make a long story shorter i'll just get a little disgruntled with the servers i'll be like you know what we're taking that off just because you sell it too easily if it's not fried they're not gonna sell it you know it's just like it's painful Going back to the oysters that you're talking about, why do you think there's such an apprehension? I think there's two oyster camps. You know, if you grew up in the South, you're used to the Gulf style oysters and stuff like that. If you grew up in kind of the Northeast, like I did, you have your Northeast style oysters and the two never really seem to cross. Like, what do you think the apprehension is from one group? Not necessarily just trying the other one, but adapting and seeking out the other, you know, the Southern oysters, if you're from the North or if you're from the South, the the Northern oysters. I mean, I think it's kind of exactly what you just said. I mean, I think the stigma has been shaped, you know, like I think it's going to take a lot of educating, but I think at the end of the day, I mean, myself included, you know, like going back to early in my career, you know, before I got to serve so many Southern oysters, like I would look at an oyster bars menu and and absolutely I'd go towards PEI and Maine, uh, Northwest, you know, like British Columbia, just thinking that, oh, these cold water oysters are better because you kind of just think of like warm water oysters. I think of those big, clunky you know galveston bay is like you know you better throw that thing on a hot grill and and some butter and hot sauce butter and just cook the hell out of it until it's fully poached you know i mean i'm just it's just so much finesse with the southern oysters right now i mean i can't speak highly enough on this panacea region oysters and that's like trying to do a little three-day vacation with the family and go down there and hit up some oyster farms because what they're doing is brilliant now, there's two other components to the Optimist, right? There's the bar upstairs, the loop. Well, actually, more than I should say, too. There's the patio area, which I think is called Jacqueline. And then there's the music venue next door, Star Rover Sound. And, and all that stuff, I believe, is open now. And you're in charge of all that stuff, too, right? Uh, no, so we're actually not open on just Jacqueline is open, which is our our fancy shaved ice boozy bar. And then plans to open Lulu. Actually, it's French, so you're not supposed to pronounce a P. We actually just had a you know a meeting of the minds about opening Lulu, hopefully in a month. And then Star Rover got on the back burner because of the pandemic and the restrictions with you know standing room and crowded music venue. And then now 
we're hitting a little bit of a delay. There's, there's a minor staffing issue going on in the hospitality industry right now. So uh, Lulu, I'm, I'm most excited about because uh, we have an awesome beverage director slash bartender from Brooklyn, New York, uh, Kenneth Van Hooser, who's been kind of leading the Optimus program now with Lulu being delayed. He has 50 cocktails upstairs. That space is like really swanky and like dark and Frenchy and, and just like romantic, sultry space. That's actually going to be playing old school hip hop. He's running that program. And then we, we don't really have too much. There's no kitchen up there. We have an oyster bar. Uh, we have a high wattage broiler, electric salamander. And we have a small tabletop fryer. So it's going to be cocktail bar food done in like the old school Frenchy way, which definitely, you know, feeds to some of my passion. But uh, so think like Papillon Crude. I actually developed this really cool tater tot recipe about 15 years ago. That's uh, just the fresh Kennebec and, and gelatin bound tater tot. So we're going to do a play on like the old school raclette and potatoes, but we'll be doing raclette poured on the tater tots table side with cornichons, a little foie gras parfait. Uh, like I said, it's, uh, we have a broiler, so we're going to be doing a lot of broiled seafoods with butter. So like broiled oysters and crab, and then just raw oysters on the half shell, obviously, and a few other simple things like sliced country ham. So mainly the star of the show is uh, Kenneth's cocktail program, but Oh, we have a, a cart for Tableside Bananas Foster. So just a fun, dimly lit space that I'm super stoked on. So hopefully we get that up and running in a month. And then Star Rover is designed to have some, basically be a music venue. So every night that we're open there, about four nights a week, we'll have live music. Uh, and that's going to be, you know, Ford. Ford is uh, near and dear to the taco culture. So we'll have some fun uh, street tacos and plays on that and burger. We have soft serve ice cream and churros, frozen margaritas, and just like tap beer, loud standing room, just kind of fun, fun vibe in there. So when it's all up and running, yes, that'll be on me. As long as it opens in stages, right? As long as it's one and then the next one, not all of them at the same time. Believe it or not, that's what we're going to do. Uh, thir- thir- 13 months ago, right as the tornado landed and gave us a couple of weeks of delay there slipping into the global pandemic since you've been in nashville so you've been there for i think roughly what like three years or so maybe maybe it's been a little bit longer but um, yeah almost three about with the atlanta stint not really full time but yeah two and a half so since you guys have been there how has it you know how has it changed since you've been there have you have you seen anything and shifting or do you see kind of now that you've been there for a while where it's kind of headed where do you think it's headed I mean, I see a lot of outside groups, you know, ours included, outside by the sense of coming from other cities, maybe more established cities, if that's the right expression, um, coming in from the hospitality standpoint and, and like putting roots down here. I mean, I think everyone of their mother sees the potential in Nashville, you know, whether it's Michael Mina or Ford Fry. I mean, people people want to put some roots down here because they see the potential. Uh so I, I see that on a physical level. I mean, just downtown is exploding with new structures. There's tons of transplants. I mean, I know our neighbors are from Oregon and there's always like a running joke that, you know, the Southerners and like, you know, the Californians are coming out and like people are just mocking the Californians. And I, I always say I'm from Virginia. So, but uh, it's, it's exploding. I mean, it, there's a lot of change. And I mean, from the restaurant world, I mean, I always, I always have my go-to. We actually have reservations tonight. We always take the family to Folk. In East Nashville, that's from Philip, the owner of Rolf and Daughters. Folk is by far my favorite spot in town. Yeah, we didn't get the chance to go there. I think they were closed when we were down there just because of pandemic and restrictions and all that stuff. So there were there were a decent amount of places that were still closed when we were down there last. But you mentioned it a little bit earlier. There's a lot of cities, I think, are experiencing restaurant staffing shortages, hospitality industry Nashville, at least from the outside, seems maybe it's not quite as bad as it is in some other cities. But any insight as to why that is, if it's... I can't really speak too much on the other cities, to be honest. I mean, I just kind of put it all in one one category. I thought us as a nation were all struggling. I mean, maybe you have some more insight than I do. But I mean, I know from firsthand, I mean, knock on wood, or I mean, we are, I think you were mistaken at the very beginning, but we're open seven days a week, seven nights a week, I should say. And uh, I know a lot of our acquaintances in town are have closed one or two services. And a lot of our sister restaurants in Atlanta are closed one or two uh, days as well. So I guess, you know, I don't want to say we're in a better position because I mean, I, I feel like, you know, we're, we're fighting the same battle, but firsthand, I, I mean, I think I alluded to it earlier, if I was a chef still in my twenties, 
we'd probably be closed uh, a day or two for service. You know what I mean? But you really have to, you really have to have a different tack these days with like your, your kitchen staff. I mean, you really got a different form of nurturing, aggressive nurturing, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think there's one right answer for why there are, you know, I think it's people that are maybe scared to go back into the hospitality industry for fear that there might be another lockdown and getting laid off again or something like that. Or some people found jobs in other industries too, as well. So it's kind of a whole bunch of different things. It seems I the only reason I could think that maybe it hasn't hit Nashville quite as maybe bad as some other cities, at least that it appears to be. And I, from what, at least stuff that I've seen is that just, you don't have the, the income tax there. So maybe that is, somehow tied into you know less of a financial hit for people like i'm not sure that's the only thing i could even really kind of stretch and come up with you know i mean i I tried to take my kids to the local the local burger joint yesterday which is just a chain corporate place nothing to write home about and uh there's a sign posted there closed sunday mondays due to extreme staffing shortage i think there's pockets of i mean we're blessed right now we have a kitchen we're open every night of the week you know and you know, I'm knock on wood, you know, I just, we just keep, you have to, because at the end of the day, people aren't going to come work for you for the money. I mean, there's, that's not really the industry for that. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's like bidding wars going on now, you know, probably a year ago, you could get, you know, a really solid cook with a decade of experience for $18. Now there's people paying them 25 and, you know, my company won't get into that battle. So the only weapon I have is, is the culture and the environment, you know, the, how do I stimulate this guy? Because he's a lot different than her. How do you, you know what I mean? It's, you really got it. It's an individual basis and you have to nurture the ones you have. And it's right now it's about retention and that retention will lead to referrals. And that's kind of where we're at right now. I have uh, two cooks in orientation this morning. Uh, so I, that's why I feel like this cocktail bar is opening on the horizon and, you know, just, just day, day by day, man. It's, it's all been a It's always been a grind. It's never, it's never been fun, honestly. What's next for you professionally? I know you know you have all these different concepts that are going to be opening around uh, the Optimist too, as well. But you know, down the road, do you ever see yourself opening or owning a, another restaurant of your own? Even though you've been through that and that didn't go super great, but you had partners, is, is that something that you'd ever think of? You know, I've talked to people and they're like, you know, I used to think that way, and then after the COVID and all the financial stuff, and they're like, nah. If somebody wants to, you know, I'd rather work at a restaurant that's got, you know a nice bankroll and, and just, yeah, they can worry about the financials and I'll worry about cooking and putting out good stuff. Yeah. I'm I'm not naive. I'm in that position right now where you just said on the ladder there where they have a good bankroll. We're doing well. I get to use my creativity, cook with great products, but unfortunately or fortunately I'm just wired differently. I can't, I can't go to my grave unless we, unless we do something of our own. So I, I think it's been great. I mean, I think this pandemic for all the bad things, I think, at the end of the day, I think we're going to look back on this as maybe like the biggest catalyst in our lifetimes for entrepreneurship. And I'm no different. I mean, I I got to see some some things that I feel like won't be long term in our industry. I feel like this is reshaping the industry. And yeah, I want like my wife and I want to create a model that is maybe less reliant upon labor, maybe a little more to go format into it. Like our individual like position, like we're kind of south of nashville and suburbia a bit and you know when we go out to eat out here it's like you know what you want pizza or burgers it's like a chain restaurant like there's no like we don't want quinoa bowls and granola or anything we just want real sustenance you know like maybe a piece of chicken that's roasted properly or a salad that's dressed properly or some hand-cut french fries i don't think we're asking for too much but so yeah we want to create something that is basically dine in but also take out uh hopefully to the to the ad hoc model are you familiar with thomas keller's ad hoc yeah we didn't we didn't get a chance to try it last time we went to napa and yountville and everything i think we haven't tried ad hoc and we didn't try the we haven't been to his uh mexican restaurant that he has up there um yeah that wasn't open when we were there uh i can't remember the name of it it starts with a c it's like caliende or calienda or something like that Calenda, calenda but no, we went to Bouchon, hit up the bakery, went to the French Laundry. 
to as well. And we've been to Bursa in New York. But I mean, for you, you know, you're in a different little bit of a different boat because your wife has experience in the industry itself. So you have kind of this sounding board of somebody who can kind of understands where you're coming from, but also has ideas of her own. I mean, that's got to put you not only at ease, but like light years ahead of kind of spinning the wheels of what you want to do down the road too as well. Cause you have somebody who kind of just already gets it. You don't have to explain so many details probably. Right. Yeah. And we are, we are fortunate to already have our pop-up during the pandemic when I was furloughed. Uh, we basically piggybacked off of her sourdough business. I think how, how many loaves have you baked? Almost 7,000. Yeah. She's baked 7,000 loaves out of our house in one year. Uh, so we were fortunate enough to start a little pop-up, if you will, um, where I was doing COVID-19 meals. So for $19, I was doing a salad, a protein, two sides, and a dessert, which is a little <laughs> a little too much work for that price point. But it would, it would basically be comfort food, you know, whether it was a chicken parmesan or spaghetti meatball. Cream puffs. Yeah, cream puffs. I can't even tell you how many cream puffs I sold. But um, when it was all said and done, after like maybe that five weeks of furloughed by the the last dinner, we were doing 350 meals to in a to-go format. I just kind of realized that, man, we might be onto something here. So kind of kind of looking for a space where basically a smaller dining room. And I would love to present a menu, a weekly menu, a week in advance. And basically, okay, tonight's chicken parmesan night. And then you book online, you know, several days in advance. You book it for in-room, in-house dining, or you book it to go. And that's all us, me and my partner sous chef that's all we're preparing for that day is um, so it's almost like an ad hoc style like okay it's either here or there here or to go this is your option and i just love it from the standpoint of obviously you're you know you don't need to outfit a kitchen with six stations chefs you don't have all the variables you're basically ordering from a banquet standpoint and i think we have a captive audience out here in in suburbia that's looking for a, a wholesome meal and they sure they have to put a little trust in us because you know but i'm also not going to do lamb neck or frog's egg legs, you know? I mean, you got to do something that appeals to the public, but that's that's kind of our vision. Despite as bad as COVID was for a multitude of reasons, there are slowly starting to find out like little slivers of things that if it weren't for COVID kind of stopping things, like maybe you wouldn't have been able to test your, your pop out and see like, oh, this is really something like it might've still been like two years down the road. Like, yeah, we should try this pop-up thing. Like when are we going to find time and stuff like that? So there are some very small roundabout benefits to, to stuff that happened with COVID, even though most of it is, is just awful and bad. Agreed. No, like I said, I think a lot of entrepreneurs got their start here during this time frame. But what'd you, what'd you guys uh, call your pop-up? What was it? We call it f- fur loved, like a play on words, like uh, L-O-A-V-E-D. Yeah, no, it, it was fun. We had it we had it pretty dialed out at the end there. It was, it was definitely fun. So we got a few more questions for you. We ask these to everybody uh, who comes on the podcast. So there's some compare and contrast for everybody who listens to all the interviews that we do. Who was the biggest influence on your career thus far, would you say, looking back on it up till now? I would have to say Graham Pierce, my my first chef from Liverpool out of the retirement community. And I ended up working with him for five years. And he taught me the fundamentals, but obviously he's the one that got me into the, you know, committed to culinary school because there was a time when I was about probably 17 that, you know, washing dishes and cooking seemed like a dead end. And I actually put my notice in to go uh, work at the mall at a Hallmark store. <laughs> and he just, that was, he gave me like a dollar raise, maybe stay. And then of course, some of the sous chefs had a, had a ball with that joke for about a month. So yeah. And, and just overall his sense of humor, I, I definitely incorporated a lot of that sarcasm and filth into my kitchen style over the, the last few decades. What's the one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without has to be in your kitchen. And this is the easy one because it's the most underrated piece of equipment in the household or professional kitchen. Salad spinner. Salad spinner. Okay. I don't think we've had that answer yet. A lot of spoons, towels, stuff like that, but salad spinner. What's uh, the one thing in a restaurant that you would not fix yourself? So, this thing breaks and you're like, nope, calling somebody. I don't care what it costs. I'm not messing with that. Uh, I guess the walk-in. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own? Folk, of course. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant that you want to go to, haven't been to yet. Wow, I don't know a restaurant in this bucket list, but this has been a bucket list dining dream for over two decades, Alsace. And just to get the German influence, French food, tall steins of beer, looking at the Alps, man, foie roasted whole foie gras, 
sauerkraut, you name it. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? Man, it's a hard question, right? I guess a, a lady choking and then <laughs> I say giving her the Heimlich at Soul Bar. What was she choking on? Was it like a chicken, piece of chicken, you know, chicken wing or something? Or I think it was a, not a chicken wing, but like a, a an airline breastbone or something. Yeah. She made it, obviously, right? Saved her. It lodged right out. How much distance across the dining room did you get? I didn't, I didn't see that, but I think it, it cleared like 36 inches. Food or drink guilty pleasure? Is there anything that, you know, you try and stay away from, just whether it's in the grocery store aisle or anything like that? I mean, like my my two favorite artificial flavors, for sure, because I really don't have, I'm, I'm not the biggest junk food person, but man, I love blue raspberry. Have you ever had blue raspberry anything? Yeah, like they're, um, the blue raspberry, I mean, Airheads, what's the, they're not Twizzlers, they're like the the vines though, but they're sour. I can't remember the, the brand name of what those are, because they come in like, you know, sour green apple, sour blue raspberry, there's like sour cherry, they're, those like string, I can't remember what those are. A couple of weeks ago, I had a pretty solid hangover on a Monday morning, and uh, I opened the freezer, and there was a, one of my kids' blue raspberry Italian ice. And I had that blue raspberry Italian ice for uh, breakfast. And uh, I'll just tell you right now, it was life-changing. And then the, the other one is Cool Ranch Doritos. Pretty solid artificial flavor there. Favorite dish, favorite thing you've ever cooked, kind of created. When you look back on your career, you can point to this dish that you made as like your aha moment. Like the, the point where it all kind of came together and you're like, I can definitely do this professionally as a chef, be an executive chef one day. Um, maybe not to that degree of how you explained it, but like for me, one of my more enlightening moments was when I was at Soul Bar and my wife and I came in for dinner and obviously the, you know, the guests, the tables are pretty close together and we were sat next to a, a, another two top and I just put on this chefy carrot salad at the time because we were fine dining and it had all these components like dates and pistachio and coffee to some degree. And, um, the, the, the guests were consuming it next to me. And of course I was eavesdropping on them, you know, and, uh, and I was just hearing all the reaction, like, you know, and, and obviously I was listening to the whole conversation and they loved it. And to me, it was like almost like a level of, of like intimacy that like I basically got to con- create a dish in my mind, put it onto its physical form. And then somebody actually physically consumes it, something that came out of my brain. And for me, that moment was just like an emotional experience. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. I don't know if you are. If you are, is there a culinary, you know, moment, scene, episode that's kind of your favorite? Or if you aren't, is there anybody who was a culinary personality, whether it's Emeril or, you know, Julia Childs or somebody when you're kind of coming up through cooking that you kind of gravitated towards? I mean, I'm definitely an Anthony Bourdain fan, but, um, you know, not to the degree of yourself or a lot of people I know, especially with his death. I mean, you know, I've, I've always been a big fan. I watch his show, but I don't really have an exact moment with him. But definitely growing up, I watched, you know, like lots of Emerald. I loved Mario Battaglia. Even thinking back in my, like, you know, when I was 19 or so watching Mario Battaglia on TV, I was always enamored by how fast he produced a dish and the quality of that dish. So that was something that always stuck with me. But I really loved Emerald's TV personality. I loved all his little one-liners and the energy he brought and just his food had so much soul to it. Yeah, I mean, I just all those personalities, I, I kind of grew up watching, you know, Jacques Pepin. Of course, Julia Child, uh, Ming Tsai, uh, Martin Yan. It almost seemed like, I don't know, I don't watch TV now, but it just seemed like that. And maybe because there wasn't as many channels on, but it just seemed like that TV culture with food was Bobby Flay. It just seemed like that was the era, like that was the, the dawn of how this industry garnered respect. Where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, plug everything, including the, the bread business too. Make sure you plug that. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm not very passionate about too much social media, but um, um, my Instagram is ezryde04, and my wife sourdoughs of Somerset. That's that's where it's at. Sourdoughs of Somerset on where is it at? Facebook on Facebook for sure. You gotta check that out. So if somebody wanted to order loaves of bread, they just go there. Yeah, you can order Facebook absolutely. And then Optimus is open seven days a week. Yeah, Lulu. Lulu is going to be where it's at. I'm telling you, it's uh, going to be a cocktail experience. It's going to be memorable. Appreciate you doing this. We had a great experience at The Optimist. We'll for sure be back. It's like five, five and a half hour drive from from here to Nashville. Friends in the area and everything too as well. So it's always good to kind of head south and just, you know, experience a different city, you know, too as well. So there's always 
bunch of good restaurants in Nashville. Uh, always great experiences too. And the Optimus was for sure one of them. And we'll definitely be back just because I grew up on the East Coast. So finding good seafood is always uh, a little tricky. The bar's super high. So, but yeah, we'll, you know, stay in touch. If, if you need anything from me, let me know, you know, open invitation. If plug a menu or anything like that, doesn't always have to be a hour long podcast or anything. So open invitation, to anybody who comes on the podcast, otherwise stay in touch. Good luck with the opening of Lulu. And I'm sure we will see you soon. Yeah, man. Thanks. Awesome questions today. I appreciate it. Big thanks again to Chef Zets for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his day to to come on. You know, he's got kids running around. <laughs> his wife's baking massive amounts of bread loaves. So uh, to be able to find the time was, was really awesome. And it was a really fun conversation to have. Again, make sure to follow him on Instagram at E-Z-R-Y-D-E-O-4. You can also follow The Optimist. It's at The Optimist Nashville for his restaurant, the sister restaurant at The Optimist ATL. It's an awesome restaurant. Make sure to check it out next time you get to Nashville, especially if you like seafood. If you're a seafoodie, kind of like I am, it was awesome. So can't recommend it highly enough to anybody who's going to Nashville, along with, you know, the Catbird Seat is another place I would recommend pelican and pig was awesome when we were down there too as well so patterson house uh, they actually have like a barbecue pop-up that's going on there right now from some people that used to work within uh the hospitality group and obviously the patterson house is just a cool cocktail bar too so there's a lot of great places in nashville to check out there's so many that you're probably not going to be able to get to all of them on kind of like even if you're there for a week like we were there's a bunch of places we didn't get to that you know we want to go back to sean brock's new restaurant the continental a whole bunch of places so nashville is definitely a a foodie place. Um, it's got a lot of great restaurants. So always excited, you know, whenever we get to go there and, and get to go back and, and eat at some of our favorite spots and try some new spots too as well. So uh, make sure to check out previous episodes of Chefs and Guests. Uh, we've had a bunch of people on pretty much regularly uh, once a week. New episodes have been dropping since like June, since I got back from vacation. There's a lot there for you guys to catch up on. If you're behind or whatever, don't worry. We'll just keep coming out every once, every Thursday, once a week. Also check out Parts Now Known. Those come out on Wednesdays, me and Ben. Rewatching Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown series. We're in the middle of season six now, or we're at least we're into season six, kind of in the front part. So, you know, we do those pretty much every week. So watch an episode a week, follow along with us, or, you know, listen to the podcast and then go watch the episode. But whatever you want to do, whatever your style is, make sure to follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob. We're also on Twitter and Facebook uh, at SpoonMob1 on both those platforms. TikTok, we do have one. Haven't started using it. It's at SpoonMob on there. You can follow us if you want. We're trying to figure out what exactly we're going to do with that because um, I don't know yet. So, But also check out our website, spoonmob.com. Make sure to follow or subscribe to the podcast, depending on what platform. We're on pretty much any podcast platform that you can get podcasts on. So all the major ones, you know, Amazon Music, Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, but all the obscure ones too as well. Your Spreaker, your Breaker, Listen Notes, uh, Audible. You can find us on there too as well, iHeartRadio. So whatever your preferred you know platform is, find us on there. Make sure to hit follow, subscribe, so that way you get all the new episodes come directly to your feed. We don't have separate feeds or anything, so all the episodes that come out on one RSS feed, so it'll come straight to your player as soon as they come out. We usually release them like 1 a.m. on that day, so that way anybody who's working third shift, whether it's somebody like you know Matt Swint, who was on the podcast, who's a, a baker, and he's usually up early in the a.m., bacon loaves of bread, or if it's somebody who's like a nurse or something and works overnights at the hospital, you know, most podcasts don't drop until at least 6 a.m., 6 to 8 a.m. is kind of the time frame that most major podcasts kind of drop. So we just wanted to be earlier. That way people have something to, to listen to. You know, if you've ever been up to 2 or 3 a.m., it gets a little squirrely. It's a weird, weird time in the morning to be up and like wide awake. So you know, we try to help those people out. I've done third shift. It sucks. I'll never go back to doing it ever again, but I totally respect everybody who can kind of push through that and does it for a living. So we want to help them out as much as we can too, you know, just uh, be a little bit different with what we're doing. So shout out to them. Shout out to everybody who's, you know, been listening, reposting our stuff on Instagram or any social media, spreading the word. Big shout out to everybody who's, you know, been helping us along the way. We continue to grow. Numbers keep increasing every month, which is just shocking, super humbling too. So, you know, really can't, can't say enough. Thank you to, you know, everybody who's been with us so far. And if you're new to Spoon Mob, welcome aboard. Hopefully you guys are enjoying yourselves and enjoying content that we're putting out. And we're just going to keep doing that. And we have a lot of fun doing it. So we're just going to keep growing it and getting as many people, you know, different in interesting conversations that we can have on here, you know, do as many as we can, you know, try and do it every week. It might take a week off here or there or something like that. But 
But yeah, been a lot of fun so far. Excited to see where it keeps going. So appreciate everybody. And we will talk to you guys next week.